G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We are finally at the very end of season five of the podcast, which has been much more interesting than any of us had probably anticipated, except for you, Tim. <laughs> No, I think that that is definitely true, Chris. Uh, even for me, we, we started season five by opening the classic can of worms that is the apparent relationship between the Sumerian king list and the genealogy of Genesis 5. But pinpointing the nature of that relationship proved to be very difficult and it sent us down a long and confusing rabbit trail of numbers, and timelines and translations that is even now still a bit confusing. Yeah, that was uh, really bending my banana. By the time we got to our second episode, we were prepared to consider that the biblical use of numbers might not be the same as the use of numbers that we employ today. It became apparent that certain numbers are simply used because of their ability to carry meaning. But that didn't get us much closer to working out what was going on with the apparent correlation with the Sumerian king list. And matters got more complicated when we realized that different biblical translations from the ancient world featured different sets of numbers for the patriarchs of Genesis 5. It was that realisation that forced us to come to terms with the fact that if numbers are capable of conveying meaning, then they could also be used in storytelling. And that means that numbers are prone to manipulation by people who have different stories to tell using the same material elements. We found that the three different translations in play were telling different stories using the same original narrative. Yeah, I think that was one of the most fascinating things to come out of this whole season of the show, honestly. Yeah, probably one of the most infuriating too. Uh, <laughs> in light of that, it became clear to us that the numbers presented in Genesis 5 were not simply reducible to one original narrative where the couple of variant traditions are rising from it, but rather that all three ancient traditions of the biblical narrative are in themselves interpretations of an original story that predates all of them. And that original story may have contained some elements that correlated with the Sumerian king list. We spend a bit of time talking about how correlations or connections between ancient documents shouldn't harm our view of biblical inspiration or inerrancy. And eventually we settled on the idea that the Greek translation of the Bible most likely preserved the numbers that were first used in the original Hebrew manuscript. That was helpful because it gave us a basis upon which to begin our analysis of Genesis 5 proper. It also meant that the original and authoritative narrative being presented by the chronology of Genesis 5 was based around authenticating the temple built by Solomon as the center of Israelite worship. And that was presented by way of a chronological calculation employing the numbers used in the Septuagint which placed the timing of the inauguration of the temple at a highly significant symbolic date, which had the effect of portraying Yahweh as the true king of Israel. We spent a lot of time in numerology, didn't we? Yeah, it turns out that if you multiply 60 by 70, you get 4,200 years. And in order to express the surpassing greatness of the kingdom of Israel under Yahweh, the Septuagint timeline presents another 60 and gives a total 4,260 years from creation until the establishment of the original temple built under Solomon. This has the effect of communicating the idea that Solomon has established a kingship which has authority in heaven and earth, surpassing all others because ultimately it is God who is king in Jerusalem. And that was important because as we began to go through the patriarchs presented in Genesis 5, we saw them presented in numerological terms as kings, while not being glorified or aggrandized for their kingship. 
So that was one reason why we were able to identify a connection between the Sumerian king list and the patriarchs in Genesis 5. We found that the use of the number 60 had close ties to kingship as an expression of the total rule of the king over all aspects of life in the civilized world. That's just a part of the ancient culture that existed at the time, and the Bible is quite happy to appropriate that. And that's why we found multiples of 60 in all the patriarchs. The scriptures avoided the use of explicit terminology for kingship, but the meaning was carried over. And that tells us that the biblical author did not consider kingship to be the main thrust of the story. It may have been part of the material facts of the story, but it wasn't the focus of the narrative. Nevertheless, in all 10 generations preserved in Genesis 5, the kingship motif is found in each one beginning with the first man, the biblical Adam. Adam's kind of special in this text because for the first time in the biblical narrative, he's spoken of as an individual rather than as the archetype of all humanity. And his presence in this genealogy makes a particular statement against Babylon because he appears one generation prior to any contemporaries in the Sumerian king list. Where Genesis 5 features 10 generations, the king list has only eight before the flood. Noah is the other person who does not have a corollary in the Sumerian king list. And I mentioned that Adam is spoken of as an individual, but the text is very intentional about reminding us of the way that Adam represents all of us, having been created to be a representative of God. And the author has good reason for doing that. As I've said many times, the purpose of genealogy is to make a connection through narrative from the first person to the last. So what this text is doing is setting up Noah as God's new representative. And that's exactly what we found by the time we got to the end of the season. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Adam's story is one of immense privilege, great responsibility, and terrible sadness. One of the major takeaways from his story comes from what the text doesn't say. How his life of an imagined 930 years, while incredibly long and prosperous, fell devastatingly short of a perfect thousand years by 70, the number of the divine council from which he had been unceremoniously removed because of his transgression. I don't think it surprised a lot of people, but it might have been difficult for some to accept that the really long, really long lifespans of these people were just a means of storytelling and not supposed to be understood as literal long ages. Yeah, hopefully by the time we'd gone through a few of these names, it started to make sense for people. You know, it's funny how people don't believe the Sumerian king list, you know, oh, this guy lived for 28,800 years, but they're quite happy to swallow something like 969 years. <laughs> anyway, moving on to Seth, the son of Adam, we found that despite the fact that he occupies so little space in the narrative, there is an awful lot of tradition built up around him, particularly in the Second Temple period and beyond. And while most commentators saw him as righteous because of his inclusion in the genealogy, there were some who considered him to be a bad guy. We saw traditions that put him in all kinds of different roles, from king to astrologer to priest, and it was widely believed that Seth had a role in preserving sacred knowledge from mankind's earliest days and recording it for posterity. But ultimately, what we found in Seth was simply a man whose reputation for righteousness came in spite of his father's attempts to mold him in his own image. But the important thing to remember about Seth was the fact that he was the promised seed who would come establishing the line of the righteous. Yeah, that's right, because God had promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent back in Genesis 3. Yeah, when we looked at Enosh, we had to reconsider the way that he was portrayed in Genesis 4. His association with his son Canaan brought a fresh perspective. In Enosh, rather than the negative view connecting him with idolatry, we saw someone desperately helpless and in need of divine grace. And that grace came from Canaan. The name of Canaan brought us back to the land of Canaan, the place where God would establish his name. And since that came through Enosh, we saw a foreshadowing of divine redemption. In spite of the wretchedness of man, God would establish a place in which to dwell among his people. And the real thrust of Canaan's name outside of its value as an auditory reminder of the land of Canaan is that it is actually a word that means nest. 
And the nest is not just a place to call home, but a safe place for keeping the things you treasure the most. We're going to be talking a lot more about nests next season. Really? What's all that about? Well, I'm not going to spoil it now, am I? You'll have to wait. The fifth man in the genealogy is, of course, Mahalalel, and we worked out that at the centre of his name, the root Mahal means the revealing of glory. And that gets expanded to mean that it's the glory of God that is revealed in him. We also had a lot of fun saying Mahalalel. Mahalalel. Uh, And those first five names that we ran through in this genealogy can be strung together to provide a series of ideas that provide something of a theological history of Israel prior to the exile. So we have the consecrated man, Adam, who was established through his seed, Seth. And then despite the frailty and mortality of the man, Enosh, God did make for himself a home in which his most treasured possession would rest in safety, Canaan. And their glory was in God, Mahalalel. That was so cool and it made a lot more sense than certain other attempts to make a story out of the names of the patriarchs. Yeah, but that was the point at which things started to turn bad. All three major translations of the original Hebrew Bible had been pretty consistent up to this point, tracking along the same narrative, but with the introduction of Jared into the story, these interpretive traditions began to turn their separate ways. For the Samaritans who were familiar with the traditions arising in the wake of the writing of First Enoch, and in particular the Book of Jubilees, which formed the basis of their chronology, Jared represented a departure from righteousness that would eventually culminate in the wickedness of idolatrous Israel being brought into exile. So it was fitting that, in keeping with their chronological tradition that maintained a date for the Great Flood in the year 1307 after the birth of Adam, that Jared should meet his death that same year in the waters of the flood. Of course, to be consistent, that meant that Methuselah and Lamech would also perish in the deluge. Sucks to be those guys. Yeah, and the reason they did it is because the Samaritans wanted to make the point that rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem was a very bad thing. Remember that the Samaritans worshipped God on Mount Gerizim, not in Jerusalem. If you take the date at which the second temple in Jerusalem was inaugurated and you subtract the difference in the total timelines presented in Genesis 5, according to the Samaritan Pentateuch, you end up with a date that coincides with the beginning of the Judean-Babylonian War in the year 601 BC. What that means is that for the Samaritans, the temple represents the downfall of Judea. So the Samaritans are painting the Judean as the three bad guys in the genealogy who all get wiped out in the Great Flood and the Flood itself as the judgment of God against the reinstitution of the temple. That was mind-blowing, and I think it's fair to say that most of our audience didn't see that one coming. Yeah, and that's the thing we're going to revisit in some considerable detail as we get into future episodes of the podcast, but I'm going to try not to spoil that for you. Anyway, getting back to Jared... There are reasons why he wasn't necessarily considered to be a good guy in some traditions. The root behind the name Jared, as I mentioned before, is Yarad, which means to descend. It's actually the same root that we find in the name of the river Jordan. And the Jordan has that name because it descends from a mountain. That would be Mount Hermon. That place has got some creepy vibes, man. A person acquainted with the river Jordan would hear the name Yared. Jordan is actually pronounced more like Yadain. And think all those cosmological thoughts that we've been talking about in the early episodes of this podcast. Stuff like water as representative of the spiritual abode, water from the deep, cosmic mountains, all that sort of stuff. Jared isn't just the name. It's a picture of cosmic evil coming down from a place where the heavens converge with the underworld. And the picture created by the number of his age at the birth of Enoch is ominous. The number 162 is symbolic of divided rulership over all of humanity. There's a power struggle in play. And it's the humans against the sons of God. And we saw how authors in the Second Temple period were all over that. And you can't talk about Second Temple period literature without mentioning Enoch. What was initially supposed to be a quick survey of Enoch in Genesis and some of the literature that developed from that tradition turned into an epic five-episode miniseries on Enoch in biblical history and beyond. 
Yeah, that was deadly epic, and it was all really interesting as well. Yeah, the first of those five episodes focused on the story in Genesis 5. So we spent some time talking about Enoch, the man who walked with God. And we talked about how it came about that the Greek translation gave us the idea of pleasing God rather than walking with God. And we discussed how that really only makes sense if both of those terms refer to loyalty and faithfulness toward God when we consider the biblical usage of the terminology in the text. Although we did have the apparent ambiguity of the term Elohim in use in the text, which of course was picked up by Second Temple period authors. Then we talked about the way that Enoch was taken to be with God and how that represented part of a classic ascent narrative. But of course, the details of that narrative were not fleshed out until later. We delved into the book of First Enoch and whipped through a lightning fast summary of all five of its constituent parts. Of particular interest, naturally, was the book of the Watchers. That's the one with all the fun stuff about the giants and the fall of the rebellious angels and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to learn about the fascination of the author with issues around the calendar and that kind of thing. These days, most of us wouldn't consider anything like that to be really important. That's true. To be honest, most people, when they read First Enoch, are actually interpreting it through the lens of 1950s science fiction. They're thinking about stargates and portals and usually a flat Earth, too. Uh, but you can't look at First Enoch seriously without having to come to terms with some of its problematic passages. And of all the issues presented by First Enoch, there are probably none greater than the apparent problem of Enoch being referred to as the Son of Man in an explicitly messianic context. So we dedicated an entire episode of the podcast talking about that and trying to get an understanding of how that was supposed to be understood by its original audience. And that led to the conclusion that Enoch was being presented as a type of the Messiah who would come in the future. That was so cool how that worked out, and it really does take a shift into the ancient cultural mindset to appreciate it. Yeah, that led into a discussion on the use of the book of First Enoch in the New Testament, and that may have been one of our best episodes, and for me, probably the highlight of this season of the podcast. I think there was a major eye-opener for a lot of listeners and just a really worthwhile episode. We got some good feedback on that one. After that, we continued to look at traditions arising from the mythos around the character of Enoch in the second and third books of Enoch, and we talked about ways to understand what was going on in those texts. We saw that there were reasons to either pick them up as something informative to help get a little cultural context or to see where outside pressures were leading to theological compromise and some pretty shaky ground in doctrinal terms. Yeah, there was some weird stuff in there, man. Eventually, we'd had enough talking about Enoch and decided to move on, so we went back to Genesis 5 and explored Methuselah. We went through a whole heap of reasons why Methuselah's name doesn't mean what most people think it means, and eventually settled on understanding him as the man who is sent. So that made him something of a prophet in addition to his roles as a priest and king. And we saw that the message he had for the people was one of the coming judgment of the flood. And it was really important for us to study the text closely so that we could see where the inspiration for these second temple period stories was coming from, rather than trying to read the stories back into the text. There's a really important distinction to maintain. Yeah, yeah. That leads us to Lamech, who also had an ominous message about the end of divine forbearance and the imminence of God's action in the form of decreation. And just like in Genesis 4, we noted that the appearance of Lamech in Genesis 5 is at the turning point of the story because just when things were getting really bad we got a glimmer of hope that hope took the form of noah we took a little time to talk about the strange stories of noah's birth that came about in the second temple period and then we got into talking about what it was that made noah so good since we couldn't find any message of righteousness that noah actually preached according to saint peter and what we found out was that it was the identity of noah that seemed to be the central issue 
We're going to be talking more about this next season. The righteousness of Noah was central to his identity as a representative of God, and it was that representation which was the message preached by his life and his conduct in an otherwise entirely corrupt generation. So those weird stories from the Second Temple period about Noah having some kind of glory and radiance from the time of his birth were really just an ancient way of describing the glory of God that was assumed to emanate from him as someone who represented the Lord. It was so cool reading the book of Lamech. Yeah, it was. And it was that function of representation that made Noah the final link in the chain of the genealogy of Genesis 5. We begin with Adam, who was made to be the image of God, and we concluded with Noah, who evidently performed that function and in so doing was able to preserve mankind through the Great Flood. So did we end up actually getting anywhere with regard to this Marian King list? How are we supposed to understand the relationship between that and Genesis 5? Basically, what we have is a situation where some early original document, which we haven't yet discovered, has laid down a template for much of the basis of ancient Near Eastern civilization as a historical grounding. That has provided us with a chronology that has been used in different ways by different cultures for their own narrative purposes. And we need to remember that it doesn't give us a date for the creation of the age of the earth. We don't find any correspondence between named people on those lists, nor do we see any correlation in terms of individual lifespans or length of reign as king. The only remnant that survives is the total duration of kingship over the span of the pre-flood civilization, and even that has been interpreted differently in different cultures because, again, the numbers are symbolic. The earliest part of the pre-flood record appears to be the best preserved, and that is the part employed by the biblical authors to demonstrate the goodness of God toward the people of Israel in establishing their homeland as the place in which he would set his name. The latter part of that history, as we've already spoken about at great length, has been adapted by different cultures in order to suit their own narratives. The biblical history subverts the Mesopotamian narrative by preceding the earliest kings and including the flood hero as part of that genealogy. And crucially, regardless of which biblical tradition you follow, they all manifest an apocalyptic worldview that points toward the coming of Messiah, the judgment of the wicked, the reward of the righteous, and hope for the age to come. And that's awesome, isn't it? It sure is. So, yeah, that's a bit of a rundown of what we covered this season in the podcast. And, of course, we went into a lot more detail and chased many wonderful rabbit trails in the process. I also had the pleasure of breaking things up a little bit with an interview with Kerry Griffel. Yeah, that was a nice change. We hadn't had a guest on the show for a, a long time, and she brought some interesting perspective. And we had, of course, many great and varied answers to giant questions. We certainly did. We talked about the giants of Lovelock Cave. We had a perennial favourite about the whole sons of God and daughters of men thing, actually how that worked on a physical level. Uh, then we talked about spiritual warfare and what that actually looks like in the heavenly realms in terms of a legal battle in a courtroom setting. We talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what that actually means, you know, what it is, how it works. Yeah, uh, naturally we got a whole bunch of questions about giants and what they were like. It's pretty easy to tell when someone who writes in with a question and hasn't really read my book yet. <laughs> uh, we talked about giant footprints and their connection to ancient places of worship, which accidentally turned into a discussion about why people draw penises on toilet walls for some reason. <laughs> and uh, getting back to perennial favourites, we had the age-old question of what was the deal with the fallen sons of God being placed in authority over the nations? Yeah, and then we got a question about how I do my Bible study and what advice I had for getting the most out of your Bible. We also did some myth-busting. 
good show from back in the day, about some weird ideas that people had about the origins of the Superman, my favourite character, comic and character. Yeah, we got questions about fallen angels and what happened to them. We got into an interesting discussion about the phrase, the living God, as it is found in scripture. We also talked about the number of the beast from Revelation 13 and what that may or may not be. One of the most interesting questions we got was about the priesthood of Melchizedek and the significance of the bread and wine that he presented to Abraham and how that connected to Jesus. Yeah, that was super cool. Um, Then we talked about Nimrod and the way that he thought about God, which was reflected in his building strategies at Babel. We had an interesting talk about Jesus and his idea of family when it came to taking care of his mother. And we talked about the use of water as a symbol of spiritual forces of chaos and how that worked in Jesus' dealings with demons and the things he had to say about them. So, yeah, it was a really cool season and and we both had a lot of fun, but I'm looking forward to a bit of a break while we prepare for Genesis 6 in the next season. But we can't go just yet because we've got to do Q&A. Oh, yeah. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Rob asked in the Divine Council Worldview Bible Discussion Group on Facebook, I'm wondering about how the biblical events, specifically the events that affect the three fools of Genesis that Dr. Heiser outlined, i.e. Eden, Mount Hermon, Babel, can be lined up with known historical timelines. For example, does the knowledge brought by the Watchers line up with, say, the Neolithic Revolution? When would this have happened in history? And I know that perhaps this line of questioning is speculation, but I am hoping that some research has been done about how these events are more than simply mythic history, or examples of literary construction, such as John Walton proposes about the divine council scenes. Dr. Heiser taught that the council is real and the gods of the nations are real. That being the case, I'm hoping to get a better sense of when some of these events might have transpired in human history. I hope this makes sense. Thanks. Hmm, okay, Rob. Well, that's a great question. It would be really nice to be able to plot out human history along a continuum or some kind of a chart and just overlay that with biblical events from the primeval history to show when they happened and how they're related to each other. One of the reasons why guys like Dr. Heiser and Dr. Walton don't get into chronologies is because they understand the nature of the biblical text and the context that produced it, although they differ in their interpretations. It's a significant feature of ancient storytelling that nobody has a fixed chronological system in place like what we do when we talk about things like the third millennium BC or the year of our Lord 1970-something. Speaking of which, if you're listening to this episode on the day that it came out, it's my birthday. Chronology in the ancient world was done according to the reigns of kings. That's what made stuff like the Sumerian king list a big deal, and we see that system in use in the biblical period too. Happy birthday, Tim. I didn't get you anything. Thanks. Um, But there are so few punctuating landmark events. Undoubtedly, the greatest of all prehistoric events was the Great Flood itself. And nobody can even agree on when that happened. It was the single most significant event in the whole world before the advent of Christ. And we can't get a date for it. The problem is that the ancient world had a storytelling culture and not the kind of culture that was interested in objectivity or observable and proven facts. People quite often told stories in their own particular ways for their own particular reasons and nobody turned around and tried to correct them and say that it didn't happen the way you're telling it. So you have a few significant events in a time that predates written literature handed down over generations by people who in most cases lacked any means of creating a material record of those events. We really need to come to terms with the fact that we are at the mercy of the storytellers. 
I mean, you've got to realize that they didn't even know when these events happened either. They're just retelling the stories. And we have little choice but to adapt to their world and their way of thinking and simply embrace the narratives as they're presented. That's what we've been trying to do on this podcast since the beginning, and especially through this season of the podcast dealing with Genesis 5. I don't think it could have been more apparent in any other part of the Bible that we are without doubt at the mercy of the storytellers. Sometimes we might be able to find something that looks like a correlation. For example, I suggested in my book that the Uruk expansion best fits the model presented by the Tower of Babel story. If we wanted to make an educated guess about the flood, we'd probably be looking at around 5,500 BC. I don't think you're ever going to be able to pin down a date for the events of Genesis 3 because there'd be absolutely no way to find evidence of that in a geological or archaeological record. It doesn't really matter that much, to be honest, because the inspiration of God is connected to the message presented by the authors and not the events themselves. In fact, not even the words on the page are inspired. It's the teaching that those words present. This is an act of communication from the heart of God to the heart of man. That's where divine inspiration is taking place. I should point out as well that the very earliest versions of the Sumerian king list didn't have any mention of the flood. That only came about in later versions of that narrative. So the flood itself was inserted into these ancient Mesopotamian stories in much the same way that it has been inserted into the biblical genealogy presented in Genesis 5 through 11. So even that has been done for narrative purposes rather than chronological record keeping. The fact is, we are reading stories inspired by true events and not actual records of those events from in-person eyewitness reporters. And that's a situation that isn't going to change. So the best I can do by way of answering this question is to suggest that it would be best to try and make yourself comfortable with the situation that we find ourselves in and not necessarily having all the answers. I realize the irony of me saying that on this podcast, but that's what it is. I have to come to terms with not knowing all the answers too. As far as the Divine Council worldview is concerned, on the one hand, you have Walton arguing that it was simply a case of divine accommodation, where none of this stuff is real, but people believed it, and God wasn't about to change their whole worldview when they could still communicate biblical truth regardless. And You just have to understand that what they believed isn't the same thing as what the Bible affirms. Then you have Heiser arguing that divine accommodation only goes so far, but the best paradigm for interpreting the biblical narrative is to take that worldview of the biblical authors at face value. And that means that sometimes the affirmations of the text actually are that this supernatural stuff is real. And even Heiser will admit that you can only take that so far and then things start to get a bit crazy. Early in the biblical narrative, there are no gods mentioned except for Yahweh. And then as you go on, you start to get introduced to these other divine beings, some of whom appear to be in control of the nations. And as you go further along through Jewish history, the idea of divine beings controlling every aspect of the world, whether visible or invisible, becomes incredibly complex. And you've got angels in charge of hail and angels in charge of snow and angels in charge of thunder and angels in charge of this and that. There has to be some point at which we cross from a plausible reality into fanciful storytelling. But again, we just don't know because we're talking about a realm that we cannot observe. Maybe it only rains when God tells the angels to make it rain. Maybe that's just a creative way of explaining rain. As long as we're in our mortal bodies, we're not going to be able to draw those distinctions. So the dichotomy between those two scholars in particular is that there's a question around what actually constitutes an affirmation of the text and what is merely accommodation to a pre-scientific human audience. For the record, I'm inclined to agree with Dr. Heiser on this. I think that ancient people were highly sophisticated and intelligent communicators, capable of nuanced comprehension of abstracts in spite of the lack of scientific knowledge, whereas someone like Walton would have you believe that ancient people really did think that the sky had a solid dome above it. But I'm also open to consider that pre-scientific people are going to have some interesting ways to talk about stuff that they can't explain. And it isn't necessarily going to boil down to the demon on the doorknob or the angel at the traffic lights. 
And I think that's a healthy perspective to maintain when we talk about mythic history as well. I remember Dr. Heiser talking about the story about how he got his job working for Logos. And he said that he could tell that story in a factual way or he could tell it in a providential way. And it's the providential story that would be described as mythic history. That's the work of God in his life that resulted in him ending up where he was at that time in his life. But whether he told that story matter-of-factly or he told it with an eye toward divine providence, he was still telling the same story and it was true regardless. So two different stories can communicate truth in different ways. I think it's also true that the biblical authors use real historical events to tell entirely different stories using the material elements of the story as the building blocks for constructing their own narrative. And we've had examples of that in the podcast so far. We were doing that all the way through Genesis 4 and again all the way through Genesis 5. And we're going to see it again as we get into the flood story. But I did say I wasn't going to spoil that, so I'll shut up now. Anyway, I hope that's given you some food for thought, Rob. I know it would have been nice to be able to put places and dates against these events, but I think it's even better to dive deep into the world of biblical literature and let the authors carry you along in the stories that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. I think that's far more valuable and ultimately rewarding. Good answer as always, Tim, and it would be nice to continue talking about these wonderful things, but just like this season, our episode has come to a close. It's time to say farewell to Genesis 5, and that means that you and I are going to take a little time off. Yeah, that's right, Chris. According to our usual custom, we're going to take a month off while we prepare for Genesis 6. So there'll be no new episodes for the next few weeks or so, but don't despair. When we come back, we'll have heaps of fresh new material that will definitely be worth the wait. And in the meantime, you have all the time in the world to go back and catch up on previous episodes that you might have missed, or perhaps get yourself a copy of the book, Answers to Giant Questions. Make sure you are subscribed to the show so you don't miss us when we come back to talk about the Nephilim, the state of the pre-flood world, and the way Noah saved human civilization from the brink of extinction. It's going to be awesome. Don't go anywhere. That's right, folks. Don't forget, you can still send in your giant questions in advance to be answered on the show next season. Just go to the website, giantanswers.com, and you can leave your question anonymously if you want to. This would be the perfect time to get questions in about the sons of God, the Nephilim, Noah's Ark, but you can ask anything you want, almost. (laughs) Anyway, that's it from us. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. See you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Great Forsaken, greatforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Yeah, that was uh, short and sweet. Like a midget covered in chocolate. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Mmm, chocolate midgets. I will send you an obligatory birthday greeting. (laughs) Probably in those exact words. I will receive it with joy.
and with appropriate measures of uh, feigned surprise. Obligatory joy. I've started reading a book by Irving Finkel, who uh, works at the British Museum and is um, involved with handling those um, ancient Mesopotamian clay tablets with the cuneiform inscriptions and stuff. Wow, that's a cool job. And he's written this book called The Ark Before Noah. Oh, okay. Um, because he made the discovery of a clay tablet that actually describes the construction of the ark. Wow. Obviously not, you know, as the Bible describes it, because this is before the the time of the Bible being written. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's a unique thing because most other ancient flood stories, you know, they mention the ark a bit. They have sort of a vague idea of what it's about, but they don't go into much detail. So this is a big deal. And, um, yeah, I'm really keen to get stuck into reading that book. And reading anything is difficult when you've got three kids in the house. Um, so I'm finding it a bit hard to make traction. But now that we've got this out of the way and finished our season, unfettered by uh, these obligations. So I'll be able to devour the book and that will be part of my studies. I've also got a lot of research to do, some refreshing on stuff that I already wrote in my book. And, yeah, generally a lot of uh, nerdery and geekdom. I encourage and appreciate both of those things shouldn't harm our view of biblical inspiration or inerrancy and eventually we settled on the idea that the greek translation uh, you know what i'm going to say that again because i hit the microphone with my hand just uh, another day ticking over i guess uh, but yeah i'm conscious of uh, drawing closer to 50 <laughs> yep i'm drawing closer than you at the moment well and always will yeah uh, once i reach yeah. it i'll let you know how it feels there, there will be a point at which you'll be further from 50 than me. Yes, that's true. <laughs> G'day, folks, and welcome back to another. I spoke over you, sorry. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs>